As the United States and much of the rest of the world experience the worst inflation in decades, more and more workers find themselves struggling to afford basic necessities. The war in Ukraine is now deepening the inflation crisis and causing the price of fuel to skyrocket. We'll take a historical look at how inflation and war often go hand in hand. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. There's also a new hard copy edition of Professor Wolf's Understanding Marxism. That's a book that's been released once again, featuring a new lengthy introduction, strengthening the case for why Marxism is worth understanding. You can check out all of his works at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, glad to be here. Thank you so much. Professor Wolf, of course, since February 24th, when Russia obviously decided that the U.S. was not going to negotiate, decided to take matters into its own hand, carried out a military invasion of Ukraine. The whole world situation has in many ways shifted and changed. I mean, inside of Europe, the United States has been able to galvanize European public opinion around a very staunch pro-NATO position. The U.S. has implemented severe sanctions against Russia, evicting, essentially evicting Russia from the world economy, seizing or taking control of Russia's own currency reserves, and now boycotting oil and gas. And of course, for Europe, which may follow suit with the United States, that will have a devastating impact, of course, possibly and probably on the Russian economy, maybe, maybe not. We'll see what other alternatives they have. But it certainly will lead to a a very uh, strong spike in prices for energy for Europeans. Anyway, let's just talk about these two processes that are going on now in parallel and how they intersect. The one process is the inflationary spiral that we've been witnessing for the past I don't know, 18 months. You and I were talking about that at the very beginning where you were making the argument that no one could really tell with certainty whether there would be higher prices, sustained inflation or not. And anybody who was telling you to the contrary was just sort of talking through their hat. But we can see now a year and a half later, inflation really is a thing. It's a stubborn thing and it's a growing thing. And at the same time, this new sharp turn in international affairs, the war in Ukraine, 
Let's just talk about how that intersects and what you think is likely to be the outcome regarding inflation. Well, the important thing, or at least one of the important things to get clear is that, as you say, we were talking about inflation for many months before Russia invaded Ukraine. The effort, therefore, of recent weeks to somehow blame that Russian invasion for the inflation is simply an ideological maneuver to shift off attention from an economic system like ours that produces such inflations onto an exceptional historical event like the invasion. All that will happen as a result of the invasion is not a change much in the inflation, just an extra boost so that the inflation will last longer and be worse than it might otherwise have lasted or otherwise have gone. That's the most you can say. And even that has to be qualified that it isn't the invasion that worsens inflation. It's the sanctions. It's the response of the United States and its more or less hesitant allies, some very hesitant, some not so. That is going to be much more important than the invasion itself. And I think one of the uses I can be to help people think clearly about it is not only to remind everyone, as a famous journalist once said, the first casualty in every war is the truth because the two sides end up, I'll be polite here, wildly exaggerating everything and anything they have to say. The enemy becomes the evil, awful horror. They themselves become the noble, wonderful good. This is being played out in the United States on a scale even I am a little bit taken aback by. We have to kind of get beyond that and keep some realities in mind. Here's probably the most important. The GDP, the gross domestic product, which is a rough measure of how big an economy is, because the number represents the total value of goods and services produced in an economy in a year. The GDP most recently of Russia is one and a half trillion dollars. That's a rough index of their economy's size. The United States GDP, by comparison, is over $21 trillion. They're not even close. This is not a fight between equals. This is a fight of David and Goliath. And I'll leave you to conclude who's playing which role. There's no content. Italy has a larger GDP than Russia does. Italy's is $1.9 trillion. Russia's is one and a half trillion, just to give you an idea. The alliance of the United States with, for example, most of Western Europe means that a country, Russia, with one and a half trillion dollars worth of economy is squaring off against Europe, the United States, roughly NATO, which has conservatively somewhere between 10 and 15 times the amount of economic wealth and power. 
this is an extraordinary effort to squash an adversary one-tenth or one-fifteenth of your size. It's extraordinary in that way. What it does do, however, is focus Russia on those things that it has to push back against these sanctions so that it isn't damaged. And that's already underway, but it's at an early stage. So I have to say that what we're seeing now is the impact on inflation simply by the imposition of the sanctions by the West. We don't yet know exactly all the things that Russia and her allies, that by the way include China and India, the two most populous countries on the face of this earth, we don't know what sanctions are coming back yet because it's only begun. The other day, Russia announced that if it's if it cannot access its reserves, property, by the way, it owns in dollars and, and other currencies, if it can't access those to pay its bills, well, then it, it's the people it buys from will be paid in rubles, and they'll have to struggle to deal with what those rubles are worth in an economy in which the West, 15 times bigger than than Russia, what it's imposing on them, which will hurt, of course, the ruble. But that way, they shift the burden of the sanctions back onto the people who impose them. It's a little bit like the game that Mr. Trump played. He levied a trade war and a tariff war, much like the sanctions we're talking about now, different in particulars, but the same effort to crush the Chinese or at least to change their policies in basic ways by imposing costly sanctions on them. A tariff means that the price of every good produced in China and shipped to the United States, and that's one of the biggest trades in the world, will cost much more money because the Americans who buy these things will have to pay not only the price the Chinese charge, but the tariff, which is just another name for a tax, imposed by the United States government on top of that. I think we can all say quite safely, now that Trump is gone, that the four years of a trade war he told us would be easy to win, and the four years of a sanctions regime against China accomplished hmm, roughly nothing. And that gives you a hint at what the likely outcome is of these sanctions against Russia, since China is clearly part of what are the allies Russia is relying on. Last point. You might be interested to know what is the Chinese GDP if Russia's is merely 1.5 trillion. If the United States is 21 plus trillion, well, then the Chinese might interest you. Theirs is roughly 14 trillion. So they are an immensely larger economic powerhouse than is Russia. And so their alliance gives Russia options that on their own they could never have. If you add the careful way in which India is not taking sides, but probably tilting towards Russia, we're in a situation where we can't know how all of this will play out. One thing we can be sure of, the inflation, 
which is like a tax on the American people, is going to get worse before it gets better. And this is a result, as I said, less of the war than of the sanction response to the war. Right. So we have the capitalist class and their politicians now able to blame Russia when people have trouble paying the amount that they need to pay to fill up their tank to drive to work. They have to people are more and more people making decisions. Do I get a half a tank now, a quarter of a tank now, because I also have to actually buy food for my family? I have to pay rent. The eviction moratorium has been lifted. I've already, I'm down three months. I mean, these are the real problems of big parts of the American population. And you would never know it if you read the mainstream media. I mean, once in a while, there's a a rare sort of human interest story about the suffering of this or that person, but they're rare. I mean, so many more stories are, say, about Russia or about how great Jeff Bezos is doing or Elon Musk's latest space venture. I mean, the real conditions of working class and poor people in the United States, I believe, is the most underreported story in the American media. And I think people who aren't poor, who are not in low income jobs or living in poverty, you know, maybe you feel exempted from the suffering of the working class, but anybody who's in poverty or near poverty, whose family is in poverty, those problems are all consuming. And again, how easy, Richard, to blame Russia for everything. And as you're saying, the price hikes were going on well before this. I mean, the politics of deflection, of distraction, of diversion are so ever-present and so dominating, and it makes it a really important challenge for the left not to shy away from the hard positions like the position that you're taking. I mean, it's so ludicrous now. You have Russian, anybody who's Russian is like a target. I've mentioned this a couple of times in my show, but I just saw it again. The International Cat Federation bans Russian felines from competitions. And the International Cat Federation associate said, we had to do something. The suffering was so great in Ukraine. So, you know, let's ban Russian pedigree cats from international competition. I mean, that's where we are. It's the politics of diversion, distraction. And of course, Richard, I think for those people who are maybe born after the end of the Cold War, the anti-Russian or anti-Soviet or anti-communist sort of demonization, which was such a powerful part of American politics, even though Russia is no longer communist, there's no communist party of the Soviet Union, it kind of almost doesn't matter. It's all you know, mixed together as part of the political DNA within the United States and continually promoted such that it doesn't actually go away. Well, I think you've hit upon something that is enormously important and worth more than one program, if I might suggest it. Let's review the history. Capitalist countries have been struggling over the division of the world amongst themselves for at least 150 years. Here's what I mean. As a capitalist economy grows, whether it's in Britain or Germany or the United States, or for that matter, Russia, it pretty soon uses up its own country. In other words, it finds and utilizes the raw materials, 
that it has in its own borders. It finds and uses up the food production needed to feed their workers in their country, and they use up the market. That is, they've sold about as much as people in their country can afford to buy. But the competition among capitalist enterprises doesn't stop because they've reached the boundaries of their own country. Long before they even reach those boundaries, capitalists in their competition are looking for cheaper sources of raw materials and food around the world beyond their borders and are looking for markets to sell their material that they produce beyond their borders. And as they do that, German capitalists discover they're now competing not just with one another, but with British capitalists and American capitalists and Russian capitalists. And in that competition, each nation's capitalists call upon their political leadership to help them, to defend them against what they will inevitably call the unfair tactics of the other country. Remember Mr. Trump telling us that everything he did to whack the Chinese was only done in defense of what the Chinese were inappropriately doing to us. There's nothing new here. The French said that about the Germans. The British said it about the French. It's an old story. And the sad result of that story has been such horrors as World World War I, World War II, and many other conflicts. But of course, as each country bumps in to the other country, seeking to take control of those raw materials in that part of the mines of Africa, or those food sources in that part of the plains of Latin America, and they call on their governments, eventually the governments bump into each other, and that's called foreign crisis. And when that can't be resolved by negotiations and deals, it becomes foreign wars. And when you fight a war, you've got to come up with something to persuade the mass of your people to be supportive of the war. Because, you know, they won't be if it's all about the profits of the businesses in their country, because they don't want to lay down their lives and pay wild taxes to fight a war for the benefit of a few capitalists, even if those are fellow members of their particular country. So you got to come up with an enormous, wonderful, overarching reason. If you look at the propaganda that the Germans put out in World War I, the British were evil and trying to take over the world. If you look at the British propaganda at the time, no, 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 it was Kaiser Wilhelm in Germany who was the sum total of evil, and the Germans were trying to take over the world. In each country, you could persuade your people that it was a defense against the evil other that they were being called up to fight against in a war. And in the 20th century, once there was a revolution in Russia, the name of the game became not just fighting to defend your particular country, but now you were told you were fighting against the evil of a global movement called socialism or communism. And we were all awash in the 20th century in the fight between capitalism and socialism. 
now that the Soviet Union isn't there, that game, that propaganda story is no longer useful. You got to come up with something else. So for a while, we were in a great war against terrorism, another way to rev up the population. Now that's faded. We have come up with a new one. Same country, different fight. Russia again, but this time the capitalism versus socialism story makes no sense because of the changes in Russia since 1989. So we have to make Putin out to be a Hitler. I don't like Mr. Putin any better than many of the other people in the world do. I have no interest in defending him. But to portray this whole story as the evil Hitler type, that's an other old effort to once again rev up the American people so that they will support what is actually a struggle by the United States to maintain its position in the world. And if you give me two minutes, I'd like to talk about that because it helps situate this whole Ukraine story. Sure. World War II ended when the Soviet Union beat back the German army that had gotten as far as Stalingrad in Russia and drove them back into Berlin to end the war. The outcome of that war was a deal, a deal made by Stalin, the leader of Russia, Churchill, the leader of England, and Franklin Roosevelt, the leader at that time of the United States. They made a deal. And in that deal, a group of countries, two or 300 miles wide, running from the north of Europe, Poland, and the Baltic republics, all the way to the south of Europe, Bulgaria, Romania, and all of that. And that became Eastern Europe, and that was given to the Russians, the Soviets, as a kind of protective band that would save them because they had been invaded twice by the German military, once in World War I and again in World War II, and they didn't want to be vulnerable that way again. And that was the agreed world arrangement. It lasted from 1945 until 1990. When the Soviet Union imploded in 1989-90, that deal was effectively done. Negotiations were held. Those countries became independent fully from the Soviet Union, which they were, in fact, already. And they were promised, the Russians were, that this would remain a kind of safety, neutral, if you like, zone. That promise was broken. By the way, a promise made by the West, including the United States. Immediately, they went to work to bring all of those countries, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, the Czech Republic, you name them, into NATO, into a reattachment to the West, taking them away from the Russians to whom they had been assigned by that deal in 1945. And the reason that was done was because the United States could do it. It was very powerful. And the Russians, who were the only ones who might have stopped it, were too weak, too disorganized by the collapse of the Soviet Union to push back. So Poland, the Czech Republic, one after another, those countries shifted and became part of the West economically, politically, culturally, etc. This kept going 
until we get to Ukraine. At which point the Russians, recognizing that in the year 2022, the world was a very different place from what it had been in 1989 and into the 1990s. Russia had overcome the trauma of the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was now much stronger than it had been ever since 1989. And the United States, in contrast, was much weaker, having lost the wars in Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq, as well as having a much smaller footprint in the world economy than it used to. So the balance shifted again. And you know what the Russians said and did? You can't do to Ukraine what you did to all the others. We're not letting you do that. We don't have to anymore. We're stronger. You're weaker. And we have the ally of the fastest and most powerful economic engine in the world, namely China. And so they made their decision. They're not going to let Ukraine go in the direction that could ever lead to NATO members. They're not going to let this happen. That's what's going on here. The Ukraine issue itself is a footnote. It's a horrible experience for the people there that we can see. War always is. But the reality is it's a reorganization of the world economy played out on the battlefield of Ukraine, but it's a much bigger reorganization that's happening. It's part of the decline of American capitalism, which is so hard for this society to face that you have to kind of understand the lure of a story of the evil other Putin or whoever you pick out. You know, we said that Saddam Hussein was Hitler in Iraq. We're fighting Hitlers all over the world. Whenever we fight, the opponent is a Hitler figure. This is the desperate effort of a, of a system that is in decline and can't do much about it. And so it yells and shrieks and shouts and imposes sanctions to give itself the sense that it's making a valiant fight to slow this reorganization. But this is a bigger process than the United States can stop. It's a bigger process than the United States can accept. And that makes the world a very scary place because you have to wonder how far Russia and China will go to demand their place that accords them their position that their strength now makes them want and need and expect. And how will the United States accommodate or adjust to the corresponding diminution of their position in the world? That's what is going on, and it happens to be focused on Ukraine. But make no mistake, Ukraine is a footnote. It's a little bit like saying World War I was started when an archduke was assassinated in Sarajevo, what became later part of Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia, Sarajevo, and the assassination of that particular noble character were footnotes. They weren't the issue. They weren't the cause. They weren't the center. They weren't the purpose. Ukraine, the horror being experienced by the people of Ukraine, is itself that parallel, that detail that should not obscure the larger picture, just like we should not obscure that the United States as a capitalist system, 
having taken its working class through the year 2020 and the year 2021, the worst public health disaster in this country's history, coupled with the second worst economic crash since 1929, that we just went through those two extraordinary years at the same time, only to emerge in this year with a crushing inflation in which the prices are going faster than the wages, that tells you that a system exists that is subjecting its own working class to extraordinary suffering while pretending that the great issue of our time is thousands of miles away. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from pandemics or itself. There's a new hard copy edition of Professor Wolf's book, Understanding Marxism, which has been recently released. It features a new lengthy introduction, again, strengthening the case for why Marxism is worth understanding. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll be discussing the situation in Ukraine and the U.S.-Russia relationship with author, journalist Vijay Prashad. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.